good to worship together today. God's word for us is in ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, verses 28 through 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to, on a, onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Remember that toward the end of the sermon. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we join Jesus and three of his closest disciples, Peter, John, and James. The setting is high upon a mountain, and Luke reports that Jesus had taken them up to pray. The sole purpose of Jesus selecting the three disciples and going up to the mountain was for prayer. And as I was studying this week, I don't know that I ever paid close attention to the purpose of going up to the mountain. I kind of skipped over it. But the sole purpose was that Jesus could take those three key disciples up to the mountain for prayer. They had their own mountaintop experience with Jesus. I remember a mountaintop experience in my teen years when I was in eighth grade. In fact, January of my eighth grade year, my mom and stepdad decided to move four hours away. I can't tell you how hard that was for me. We moved a lot when I was a kid, but moving right in the middle of eighth grade before you're supposed to go to high school with all your friends that was doubly hard. I didn't know a soul. My mom and stepdad had some connections at a Methodist church there in the town where we had moved, and we attended there. And the youth invited me to go on their summer mission trip to New Mexico to work with the Navajo Indians. They didn't know me. I did no fundraising like they did to help pay their way. But yet they extended hospitality to me and invited me to take part on the trip that they had raised all the money to go on. And I'll never forget that. And it tells me, a side note here, how important it is for us, especially for our students, to be welcoming to others who might be new in our church. 
And that really goes to all people, but it changed my life. That mission trip changed my life. It was a spiritual, spiritual marker for me. While we were out there serving, the volunteer team and the youth pastor took us on a trip through Arizona to see the Grand Canyon and some of the other sites. And while we were there on the Grand Canyon that morning, the youth pastor led in a worship service where we had Holy Communion. I will always remember and never forget receiving the elements to communion there overlooking the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It was a time where I was very, felt very close to God. It was my own mountaintop experience in the midst of the valley of moving far away to a town where I didn't know a soul. To be frank, it would be easier for me to preach a message about our mountaintop experiences in the valleys below where often we fail. While Jesus and his closest disciples were up on the mountain, the other nine were down in the valley below struggling to carry out the ministry and mission God called them to through Christ. They failed to be able to heal a boy that uh, had been struggling with illness since birth and the father was frustrated with their inability to heal his son. We could preach about our failures and our mountaintop experiences. Or I could approach the text today to help us to have some balance in our lives. Uh, being with God on retreat, getting away, and then having the strength to be able to do the work of God. Such spiritual retreats help us to have the strength and nourishment to go about our everyday service in Jesus' name. Or perhaps a sermon about how the disciples continually failed Jesus and the things he told them to do and trying to teach them, like falling asleep in prayer. On the mountain, they got sleepy. And you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fell asleep. But Fred Craddock, Bible scholar, suggests that there is more going on than this at the Mount of Transfiguration. That perhaps... To be left there for a while in all of its ministry and power might finally influence life in more ways and in more depth than interpretations that reduce the text to lessons that assume this is the way life is for us today. Not reducing the story of the Mount of Transfiguration to three applicable points and a sweet poetry, poetic ending. There is more going on here, I believe. The study of our text should begin with reading all of chapter 9, even going back into chapter 8, which is a pivotal time in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus had given the twelve the power and authority over all demons and diseases. He sent them out on their own missionary journeys, empowering them to heal and exercise demons. Then later in chapter 9, you see Jesus miraculously feed the multitudes with five loaves of bread and two fishes. And then at the city of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to his disciples, Who do you say I am? And Peter said, You are Christ, the God, uh, Christ of God. He experienced a moment of faith and clarity in declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, which means anointed one in the Hebrew. Immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus revealed the startling new work that the Son of Man would undertake. This is his first passion prediction. The suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection that would come. That major sacrifices and the cross would come for the Son of Man 
and his followers before God's glory is made manifest on earth. Jesus himself said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. As we continue through chapter 9, Luke reports that about eight days later, eight days after Jesus said these things, he took Peter, John, and James up to a mountaintop to pray. You might say, Pastor Bob, why eight days? Both Matthew and Luke, I'm sorry, both Matthew and Mark record six days in their Gospels. Not necessary to read too much into it. Both numbers, six and eight, were used to refer to about a week's time. So you could say about a week after all of these things were said, Jesus took these three up to the mountain to pray. But the number eight is also the first day of the week, the first day after the seventh day. Since Jesus is beginning a new chapter of his ministry here in Luke 9, perhaps the number 8 points us to a new chapter in his ministry, and he recognizes that and intentionally took them up there on the 8th day. Whatever the reason, they had been in Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles or so from Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. The map on your screen is of Upper Galilee, and the red arrow shows you where they were at Caesarea Philippi where Peter made his dramatic confession of Jesus as Messiah. And then about eight days later, Jesus takes his three closest followers on a long trek up to the mountain. And you can see in the yellow highlight, Mount Hermon is circled. Luke doesn't say it was Mount Hermon, but most Bible scholars believe that spiritually and geographically it made sense that it was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was, after all, the mountain. And in the Greek, Luke says he took them up to the mountain. There's a definite article in the Greek. Mount Hermon was the mountain. It was the highest mountain in the Holy Land with the elevation of over 9,200 feet. Three distinct summits, snow-capped most of the year. Its waters fed streams and rivers which converged to become the headwaters of the Jordan River, which has all kinds of symbolic significance for Bible area where Jesus himself was baptized, for example. And in this next slide, you can see the immense size of Mount Hermon in light of Caesarea Philippi, which is located down in the bottom center of the photo. Peter, John, and James, and Jesus made their journey up the steep terrain of this mountain. Could you imagine being there with them? Could you imagine seeing what they saw? What did they talk about while they were walking? Did the disciples complain about the blisters that they got from those sandals? Or maybe they didn't have things on, shoes on their feet to wear. Or like Isaac asked Abraham, where, where is the sacrifice for this offering? Kind of confused. Maybe these three were wondering why Jesus was taking them up there in the first place. But we know this was not a journey for the faint of heart. Perhaps Jesus was testing their endurance level. No wonder they were sleepy when they got up there to the top. But Luke reminds us that the purpose of their journey was for prayer. And something miraculous, something amazing, something they had never seen before happened 
when Jesus was praying. Oh, they heard about the stories of Moses being transfigured, but now they could see it with their own eyes. And what they saw would be imprinted on their minds for the rest of their lives. Consider how some images speak for themselves. In the headlines, we see an image and it reminds us of an era or a movement or a campaign or an organization or an ideal. That happened here. Think about the way that images affect us and stir up our memory. Consider the following faces and their respective influence or ideals. Einstein, the face of science. Shakespeare, the face of literature. Beethoven, the face of music. For you psychology majors, Freud, the face of psychology. President Lincoln, the face of freedom. Rosa Parks, the face of activism. Lady Diana, the face of royalty. Oprah, the face of influence and media. Steve Jobs, the face of innovation and technology. Martin Luther King Jr., the face of the civil rights movement in our country. Mother Teresa, the face of the Christian faith. And one more just for fun, Mickey Mouse, the face of Walt Disney World. Can you think of some other faces for our purposes today? Luke tells us that as Jesus was praying, that two men appeared on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the face of the law or the Torah. Elijah, the face of the prophets. Thanks to movies like Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments, many of us have a working knowledge of Moses. We know that he met God at the burning bush, parted the Red Sea miraculously through God's power, led the people through to the wilderness. We may even understand how being known as the face of the law makes sense because he is the one who received the Ten Commandments from God. But Elijah, not so well known. He didn't have any books in the Bible named after him like the other prophets. We read about him in First and Second Kings. Elijah arrives on the scene when Israel's kings compromise their faith for political expediency. He speaks of God tirelessly, calling the people and their leaders away from worship of pagan gods back toward the God who is the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God tells them that a drought is coming because of the people's unfaithfulness, Elijah announces it to the people. During a drought, God miraculously saved Elijah through the faithfulness of a widow. He challenged the prophets of Baal and proved that their offerings and sacrifices were worthless. And fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice of Elijah and of the Baal worshippers, turned the stones of altar to dust and caused the water in the trenches to evaporate into a mist. No prophet in Israel had produced at God instance that kind of appearance or miracle. Elijah risked his life and reputation to speak for God, yet he feared for his life regularly as God's message was not always well received as he spoke it. Twice he fled out of town. Each time he seemed doomed. God met him in wonderful, powerful ways. 
Moses and Elijah share in common a special relationship with God. When each of them felt weak, when each of them felt unable or unworthy to do what God had asked them to do, God spoke tenderly to each of them. You remember that God sent Aaron, Moses' brother, alongside to speak for him. And you remember that when Elijah withdrew to a cave and hid, God came to him not in a fire, not in an earthquake, not in a mighty wind, but in a still, small voice. The face of law, Moses. The face of the prophets, Elijah. The two have come closest to seeing God right here on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking to Jesus, who is the face of good news. And it is all recorded in today's gospel lesson. Moses, the face of the law. Elijah, the face of the prophets. Jesus, the face of the gospel. Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law. I did not come to do away with the prophets. I've come to fulfill all of what has been said through them. We've met Moses. We've met Elijah. We've heard the prophet. We know we're called to holiness. We've failed to live as we should. We've failed to keep the law as we should. But now we meet Jesus who kept the law of God perfectly. He lived a life of holiness, justice, and righteousness perfectly. And the good part is that while God agreed to accept His, His perfection on our behalf, we were still yet sinners. Christ died for us. His perfection is accepted on our behalf. Now through Jesus Christ, we are free from the law, free from religious obligations. Doesn't mean that we're to be lawless or have no obligations. Even Jesus echoed that. But because He has kept the law for us when we could not keep it for ourselves, and because He kept the word of the prophets when we could not keep it for ourselves, we are set free. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Go in everything, do to others what you would have them do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. He brings it all together. That's Jesus, the face of the gospel, the face of the good news. In him, the law and the prophets have been fulfilled, and he has called us to be the face of good news to one another and to our community and to the ends of the earth. And in this gospel story today, Luke takes us back to the Exodus where God set the people free from their bondage and tells us about Jesus' impending journey to the cross which will set all people free from their bondage. All they have to do is trust Him. In verse 31, Luke tells us that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about Jesus' departure. And the Greek word translated departure here is from is actually the word exodus the greek word is exodus this exodus he will fulfill in jerusalem the word refers both to his trip to jerusalem and the upcoming death which he told peter john and james all about with moses present this connection is important as moses led the exodus of the israelites from egyptian slavery bondage and oppression jesus exodus as it is coined here, will be a journey to liberation that will establish His kingdom for all people. In this story of the transfiguration, the face of the law and the face of the prophets meets the one who is the face of the good news. 
Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So he said, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Our freedom comes through Christ, the one who gathered with his disciples the night before he was to endure the cross. And he took bread and blessed it and broke it and distributed it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. As often as you meet together, take, eat, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine and blessed it and poured it out, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins and the sins of many. As often as you meet, take and drink, this do in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the coming of the Son of Man.